Okay. I ask you to please stand with me out of reverence for the word of our Lord as we read our passage for this morning. Luke 23, 1-16. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. They began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether this man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself at Jerusalem at the time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he, longed, he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. Now, after examining him before you, behold, I do not find this man guilty of any of, the charge, of, any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. This is the word of our Lord. May he write its eternal truths upon our hearts for his glory and for the building of his church. Let's pray together. Almighty God, as we approach this passage of Scripture, we pray that you would help us to see Christ for who he is. Help us, Lord, to see Christ and help us in the light of Christ to see ourselves. Help us to see our need for Christ. Help us to see our need for your Holy Spirit to enlighten and enliven Christ before our eyes that we may worship God in spirit and in truth. Help us, I pray, to see Christ and to worship Christ rightly. Help us to see our failings in this regard and to come to you in repentance and faith that we might grow in our ability to worship you for who you are, that you might be magnified and glorified in us for the glory of your name and for the building of your church. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, the only Savior. Amen. In January 1969, 29-year-old nursing assistant Gail Miller was found dead in a back alley in Saskatoon. 
David Milgard, then 16, was charged with a murder. He was in Saskatoon with two friends on a trip across Canada, and, and they were staying with another friend. And, and when, the, when these men were, were questioned as to the, the, the guilt of the, of the crime, these friends testified that Milgard was guilty. He was convicted in January 1970 and sentenced to life in prison. But the whole time, Milgard professed innocence, repeatedly attempting to appeal his conviction. And finally, in 1990, Milgard's friends recanted their incriminating trial evidence. But Milgard was still in jail. In fact, Milgard would remain in jail for two more years. And also in 1990, an anonymous male caller phoned Milgard's lawyer to tell him that the killer was a man named Larry Fisher. And Fisher was currently in prison for other rape convictions. But still, Milgard remained in prison. But finally, two years later, the federal government got involved in order to have the case retried. But the, Sas the Saskatchewan government instead entered a stay of proceedings, essentially putting the whole case on hold. But they released Milgard from prison on April the 16th, 1992. He'd been in prison for 17 years for a crime he did not commit. But the criminal conviction was still on Milgard's record. But it wasn't until 1997 that the Milgard family enlisted help from DNA experts in England and they were able to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that Milgard was innocent. He was then formally exonerated. But shockingly, these DNA experts also explained that a simple blood test back in 1969 would have been enough to clear Milgard, but the trial, the, the, those who conducted the trial did not, did not do this, this test. And the same DNA technology that led to the, the exoneration of Milgard also led to the conviction of Larry Fisher. They had ample DNA evidence to prove that he indeed was the murderer. In 1998, Milgard was awarded $10 million in damages from the Saskatchewan and Canadian government. He was very wealthy. But that $10 million could not buy back those 23 stolen years or the trauma that he had experienced. Nor could it buy back the life of Gail Miller or the peace of the other women that, that Larry Fisher raped around the time of Miller's murder. So in one sense, in this situation, you can say that the innocent was punished for the guilty. It was a horrific miscarriage of justice. David Milgard was punished for Larry Fisher's crime. But there's another sense in which David Milgard was not innocent. True, he did not commit anything to the magnitude of this crime, at least in the sense of, of man's laws. But he was a convicted criminal. Now, granted, it was for petty theft, and, and he had stolen a truck at the age of, of 14. But that does not make his case any less unjust. He was innocent of the murder for which he was convicted. We also need to recognize that David Milgard was not innocent in the full sense of the word. None of us are innocent 
in the full sense of the word. Only one person has ever been innocent in the full sense of what innocence means. And here he was in our passage on trial before wicked men. We saw last week that in the ultimate miscarriage of justice, wicked men condemned Jesus Christ as guilty. But in the fulfillment of God's justice, God will condemn Jesus Christ as guilty to save wicked men. So in our passage this morning, the trial of Jesus Christ continues. Once again, he has been presented as a passive participant in the proceedings. He only makes one brief statement in the whole passage through John. But though in John's gospel account, we see more details we'll talk about during the message. Once again, Jesus is presented as the recipient of the mistreatment and misjudgment of others. Yet he remains completely in control of himself and his circumstances. So he's about to be handed off from the religious authorities, the Jews, to two ungodly Gentiles. And ironically, they, like the Jews, are still fulfilling God's will to send Jesus to the cross. They also, like the Jews, are presented as evidence supporting Luke's intended purpose to prove to the Gentile Theophilus and to us who Jesus really is. There are three key phases in this part of the trial. In verses 1 to 7, we see Jesus before Pilate. In verses 8 to 12, we see Jesus before Herod. And in verses 13 to 16, we see Jesus before Pilate once again. Luke highlights Jesus' innocence and the shared blame for Jesus' death. There's plenty of blame to go around. This passage shows how the Jewish authorities put a political spin on their charges against Jesus as they present the case to Pontius Pilate. They're deviously playing on the Roman concern to avoid rebellion and civil disturbances in their effort to maintain the so-called Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. This trial has seven stages, the typical seven stages of a Roman of Roman examinations, arrest and charges, a judicial examination, a verdict, a supporting verdict, then you if the person is judged innocent, an acquittal, and a judicial warning. And every point is dripping with irony. At every point, injustice reigns. At every point, the Jewish authorities are present, pushing for a guilty verdict. The Jews themselves are presented as guilty, though Pilate and Herod are presented as guilty as well. Again, there's plenty of blame to go around. The Jews condemn Jesus as guilty. The Gentiles pronounce him innocent, but condemn him nonetheless. So first of all, verses 1 to 7, Jesus before Pilate. During his trial before the religious ruling council, the Sanhedrin, Jesus declared that he is the Son of God who they will see seated at the right hand of the power of God. He would not deny that he is, in fact, the Son of God. Both are true. Jesus is the Son of Man. Jesus is the Son of God. Nonetheless, the Religious leaders condemn him as a blasphemer. 
And now as one, they drag him before Pontius Pilate, the Roman prefect who is governing Israel on behalf of the Roman occupying army. Pilate was responsible for financial affairs and for maintaining law and order. And providentially, although not in the way we'd normally think of providence, Pilate is here present in Jerusalem. The Roman headquarters is actually in Caesarea on the Mediterranean coast. But Pilate was in Jerusalem for the Passover, not in order to worship, but in order to prevent rebellion and unrest with so many pilgrims in the city. Pilate was stationed in the Antonia Fortress, the Roman garrison, which is adjacent to the Temple Mount. The Jewish historian Josephus reports that that Pontius Pilate had recently enraged the Jews by taking money from the temple treasury in order to build an aqueduct. And Josephus reports that, that tens of thousands of Jews revolted and that Pilate ordered the soldiers to crush the rebellion and that they did violently, killing a great number of unarmed Jews. Luke had also referred to Pilate killing Galilean pilgrims in the very act of worship in Luke 13, 1 and 2. And so the question hangs in the air, what is Pilate going to do with this Galilean pilgrim? It's shocking. But the Sanhedrin, led by Caiaphas, the Jewish high priest, take Jesus to Pilate. They should have been arch enemies. But Caiaphas was quite cozy with Pilate. You see, the high priest was appointed by the chief Roman official each year. And under Pilate, Caiaphas would keep his appointment for 10 years. Here we see Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin intending to use Pilate to get rid of Jesus for them. John 11 47 to 53 records an ominous conversation among the members of the Sanhedrin in response to Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead just prior to the triumphal entry. Let's turn there. John 11. John 11 verses 47 to 53. So the chief priests and the and the priests, or sorry, and the Pharisees rather, gathered the council and said, what are we going to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Now listen, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus knew full well what they're going to do. He knew full well the sovereign plan of God. He had prophesied repeatedly this exact incident in intricate detail. Here's just a few examples from Luke's Gospel account. Luke 9.22 The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day raised. Luke 9.44 
Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And Luke 18, 32 and 33. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. So in the fulfillment of God's sovereign will, but in accordance with their own wicked desires, the Sanhedrin marches Jesus over to Pontius Pilate. The Jewish religious authorities bring Jesus Christ before the occupying Roman governor. Now Luke presents a, a more summarized account of the events. The, the, the men of the Sanhedrin will say, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, the king. Notice the three charges. First of all, they charge him with misleading the nation. They saw Jesus as a false prophet in accordance with Deuteronomy 13. And also in accordance with Deuteronomy 13, they thought that Jesus as such deserved to die. But Jesus is the word of God incarnate. He is the truth. How can truth mislead anyone? It's actually the Sanhedrin who's been misleading. They have corrupted the true worship of God. And here they are attempting to mislead Pilate, presenting the charge against Jesus as a political one. They're suggesting that Jesus is stirring up unrest and fomenting rebellion against Rome. That Jesus, that, that they're saying that Jesus is a threat to Rome. But, but Rome is a threat to Israel. Remember, as we saw in Luke 19, that the Romans will soon destroy the nation. So they charge Jesus with misleading the nation. Second, they, they charge Jesus with forbidding to give tribute to Caesar. Now that charge would, would mean that Jesus is a financial threat to, to Rome and a, a direct threat to Pilate in his role as a financial administrator. And this is a bald-faced lie. Jesus had said the exact opposite in Luke 20, 25. He commanded, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Jesus was telling people to pay their taxes even to the wicked Roman authorities. He was telling them to be, to be good citizens even under Roman occupation. Third, they charged Jesus with saying that he was Christ, a king. Now this charge is true. Jesus did declare that he is the Christ, the anointed one. The children learned about this in, in their Sunday school lesson this morning. And as such, Jesus is not just a king, he is the king. But once again, they're putting the charge in political terms. They wanted to present Jesus as a revolutionary, as setting himself up as king in opposition to Caesar. So they had taken their religious charge of blasphemy and spun it into a political offense against Roman rule. They know that Pilate had a vested interest, again, in protecting the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. But the so-called Roman peace was only a peace for the conquered. It was peace at the point of a spear. 
and peace only for those who are subservient to Rome. In fact, the Jewish religious leadership is already showing that they had no real authority because they had to go to a foreign ruler to get rid of Jesus for them. You see, under the Roman occupation, they were not allowed to execute anyone. That was, was only the authority of Rome. They recognize this. So John adds that, that Pilate will later say to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. John 18.31, not lawful according to God's law. In this case, not lawful because Jesus was innocent of those charges, but here they're speaking of it being unlawful according to Roman law. So they deviously presented Jesus as the enemy of Rome and as a, as a usurper to Caesar's role. Now this last charge piqued Pilate's interest. He questions Jesus as to whether he is actually a king. Verse 3, And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, You have said so. Matthew and Mark record the same response. It's a, it's a tacit affirmation. We saw this similarly last week in, verse, in chapter 2270. So, they, so the religious leaders asked, Are you then the Son of God? And he said to them, You say that I am. So again, Jesus is not denying who he really is, but he is not a king in the way that Pilate would have understood. John 18, verses 33 to 38 records the fuller discussion. Let's, let's go there, back to, to John chapter 18. 33 to 38. So Pilate enters his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Did you say this of your own accord, or did others say this to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation, the chief priests, have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that it might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, and this is what Luke picks up, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? As Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.13, Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession. Jesus is making the good confession as to who he really is. Jesus says clearly that he is a king. But his kingdom is not of this world. Jesus is no insurrectionist. He is not here to overthrow Rome. He is a king, but not in the way that Pilate asked the question. Jesus is a king, but he's infinitely more. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. In Luke 23, 38, Pilate will, will later write king of the Jews and, and mockingly put it on a board and, and place it above Jesus' head on the cross, demonstrating that he disregards the charge and that he disregards Christ's claim to kingship. So Pilate was not impressed by Jesus. 
But Pilate wasn't impressed by the Sanhedrin either. He knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered Jesus up. Matthew 27, 18. We'll see this again next week. It was petty jealousy. They were, they were jealous of, of Jesus' popularity with the crowds. And they're upset with the fact that, that Jesus was speaking against them and against their rule. This is the fulfillment, remember, of, of Mary's Magnificat back in, in Luke chapter 1, verse, verse 52. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and has exalted those of humble estate. These religious leaders were being brought down through the true leadership of Jesus. So they did not like Jesus because of what he was doing. They did not like the fact that he expressed, their, that he rather exposed their hypocrisy. But nonetheless, Pilate renders his verdict. I find no guilt in this man. I find no guilt in this man. This is vitally important. Luke wants us to see clearly that Jesus is innocent. The religious leaders were saying again and again that Jesus was guilty. But in this passage again and again, Pilate will proclaim the innocence of Jesus. A pagan ruler has the correct verdict, at least in this sense. Of Jesus. Meanwhile, the Sanhedrin, who has portrayed Jesus as rebelling against Rome, are themselves the one who are, ones who are rebelling against God's chosen one. And so now the Sanhedrin is more urgent. They make a vehement protest. He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. They claim that Jesus is causing unrest. But again, ironically, it is they who are stirring up the people, as we'll see shortly. They are doing everything that they can to convince Pilate that Jesus is a threat to Roman rule. They're saying that his influence extends throughout the whole region, even to Galilee. The implication here is that if Pilate fails to deal with Jesus, that Pilate is going to be in trouble with his superiors. But at the mention of Galilee, Pilate again drills down, asking whether Jesus is a Galilean. You see, this gives Pilate an out. Pilate did not want to convict or to condemn Jesus. That's clear in all four gospel accounts. But at the mention of Galilee, Pilate sees his opportunity. Galilee is Herod's jurisdiction. And in the Roman Empire, a trial could be conducted in a province that the offense was committed, or it could be conducted in the province where the accused was from. And so as a Galilean Jew, Jesus was under Herod's authority. So Pilate conveniently passed the buck. So now verses 8 to 11. Jesus before Herod. I'll move more quickly with these last two points. Again, in God's providence, though again, not as we'd normally consider providence, Herod is also in Jerusalem, also there for the Passover. Herod's residence in Jerusalem was the Hasmonean Palace, west of the temple, about a 10-minute walk from Antonia, the Antonia Fortress where Pilate was questioning Jesus. Now, only Luke describes this part of Jesus' trial. So a little bit of background here that 
some of you may not be aware of. The Herods were puppet kings propped up by the Romans. Now this Herod is Herod Antipas. He was an Edomite, a descendant of Esau, and he had followed the footsteps of his forefather Esau in his hatred of the seed of Jacob. Herod considered himself to be Jews to be a Jew, and thus his visit to Jerusalem during the Passover. But like his father, Herod Antipas was also a very wicked man. As you saw earlier in Luke, he was fleshly and worldly, living in an adulterous relationship with his brother's wife. Remember, this is the same Herod who beheaded John the Baptist. His father was the so-called Herod the Great, who had, had murdered the baby boys in Jerusalem in an attempt to kill the Messiah. Now, earlier in Luke 13, 31, the Pharisees had warned Jesus that Herod wanted to kill him too. And now this Herod has Jesus in his clutches. But Luke tells us that Herod was joyful at seeing Jesus. He was joyful at seeing Jesus, but it wasn't because he wanted to discover who Jesus was, let alone to worship him. It was idle curiosity. He wanted to see Jesus perform some sign. He'd heard about the miracle worker that was working in his region, and he wanted to see a miracle for himself. Now Luke has reported that Jesus repeatedly warned readers against those who seek to see signs. It's a foolish and wicked generation that seeks after a sign. But this concept of seeing and hearing figures prominently in this section. Remember, Jesus had told the disciples back in Luke 10, 24, For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Herod was sorry, Herod desired to see Jesus, but was blind to who Jesus is. They questioned Jesus at length, but Jesus didn't say a word. Earlier, Caiaphas had received this treatment from Jesus, and later Pilate will also receive it. But Herod is the only person that Jesus did not answer at all. Have you ever been falsely accused? I'm sure that on some level we all have. It is notoriously difficult to keep your mouth shut. You want to defend yourself. You want to say, that's not fair. I didn't do that. But silence is often the best response to injustice. As Daryl Bach explains, Jesus' silence looks like exceptional self-control. He's treated like a criminal, but he does not act like one because of his divine restraint. This is the fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. He opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep before his shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So Jesus is in control. He has the ability to speak or to not speak. So Jesus was silent. But once again, the men of the Sanhedrin weren't. They stood by. 
They're there again in this section of the trial, now vehemently accusing him. They were relentless in their attacks. These wicked men wanted to ensure that Jesus was not released. And their efforts succeed to a point. Herod and his soldiers now treated Jesus with contempt and mocked him. They they dressed him in a, a royal purple robe and mocking him as king. Here in the presence of Jesus Christ, God incarnate, Herod could only jest. It is scary how far a hard heart can take you from God. I remember last week how other soldiers, the temple officers, mocked Jesus by blindfolding him and telling him to prophesy who hit him. They were attacking him for his prophetic office. And now we see Herod and his soldiers attacking him in his kingly office. And soon we're going to see another group, including Roman soldiers, attacking Jesus in his priestly office. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the anointed prophet, priest, and king, is rejected at every point. He is rejected on every front as well by his own people and by the Gentiles. Herod also knew that Jesus was innocent. Remember, Jesus had had spent much of his ministry teaching and performing miracles in Herod's backyard. But Herod didn't have anything good to say about Jesus or anything bad. He made no charge. He should have freed Jesus, but instead he shoveled him back to Pilate. Now, if Herod wanted Jesus dead before, that was not the case now. Luke tells us in verse 13 that Herod and Pilate became friends with each other on that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. Whatever else they disagreed about, they agreed in their enmity towards Jesus. Their their mutual enmity towards Christ helped them overcome their enmity towards each other. Jesus has told told us that he came to bring peace, not a sword. Here he brings peace. But it brings peace between the enemies of God, the superficial and temporary peace in the world. But they have unity in their enmity with God. Even former enemies find unity in their enmity with Christ. I think there's an application for us in this. If the world speaks good of you, let it be because of Christ. Do you seek unity with others over a political opinion, over a social issue? Is your unity based on anything that is worldly? What is the basis of your friendships? Be very careful, lest you find yourself a friend of the world and the enemy of God. Where does your unity come from? Where does our unity come from? Partisanship will put you in opposition towards those who think differently, even with Christians who think differently. J.C. Ra quotes Theophylact, the, the Greek bishop. 
is a matter of shame to Christians that while the devil can persuade wicked men to lay aside their enmities in order to, to do harm, Christians cannot even keep up friendship in order to do good. So if the world speaks good of you, let it be because of Christ. And also, if the world speaks ill of you, let it be because of Christ. Finally, verses 13 to 16. Jesus before Pilate again. Pilate now reconvenes the trial. He gathers the Jewish authorities again, but he also, notice, gathers the people. This is a new development. The whole nation is being presented as gathered to witness Pilate's verdict. Pilate said to them, You brought me this man who is as one who is misleading the people. After examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. So here, Pilate is repeating the summary charge from the Sanhedrin that, that Jesus was misleading the people. But again, it is the leaders who are misleading the nation. The leaders are turning the people away from Jesus. The crowds who had once followed Jesus are about to turn on him. The same people who had welcomed him at the triumphal entry with shouts of Hosanna to the son of David will soon shout, crucify him. The same crowds who had prevented the Jewish leadership from killing Jesus will now join in their murderous desire. But again, Pilate proclaims his innocence. And now he includes Herod's testimony. Herod found Jesus innocent too. He says that Jesus has done nothing worthy of death. But, Pilate says, I will therefore punish and release him. This is, this is a non-secular from our perspective. It doesn't follow that Jesus, that, that Pilate's saying he's done nothing worthy of death, but therefore I'm going to punish him. Now he's speaking here of, of flogging. This is a, a lesser punishment, punishment that was meant to be a, a magisterial warning, not the usual scourging that would take place prior to crucifixion. What Pilate is doing here is he's trying to compromise. He's trying to appease the Jews while still, on some level, trying to uphold righteousness. But it's not that Pilate has any benevolence toward Jesus. If he did, he would have released Jesus. Even a so-called light flogging would have been a gross miscarriage of justice. Pilate lacks the nerve to follow through on his judicial judgment. Pilate was more concerned with preventing an uprising by, by, by beating Jesus. And eventually we'll see that he is more concerned with pre- preventing an uprising by executing Jesus than he was concerned with executing justice. Pilate and Herod notoriously misjudged Jesus. Not guilty in the way that the Jewish leaders did, but they judged him as nothing. They judged him as inconsequential. But don't be mistaken. Disregard for Jesus is as dangerous as open animosity. 
I'm sure you've experienced this in, in, your, in your own evangelistic efforts. That the majority of people that you talk to about Jesus, they don't get angry. You say, oh, that's not for me. Jesus isn't for me. That's good for you. You have your beliefs. I have mine. Have a nice day. Disregard for Jesus is as dangerous as open animosity. Pilate and Herod choose the side of those who have rejected Jesus. And they do so while acknowledging his innocence. It's the fear of man. Simple fear of man. They're going along with the, with the crowd, with, with mob justice. But before we condemn Pilate and Herod, do you stand up for Jesus in the face of, misjust, of misjudgment before unbelievers? You know the temptation. When, when you know that this is an opportunity to to, as like the song says, stand up for Jesus. To speak God's truth, the gospel, into a situation. But fear of man prevents you. So you keep your mouth shut. So often, I'll, I'll speak about myself. So often, I speak when I should be silent, and I'm silent when I should speak. Because I too, at times, disregard Jesus. And shows we talked about to the children, my disloyalty to Jesus by not standing up for him in the face of accusations of the world. And I know I'm not the only one in that. Last week we heard testimony from soldiers and the Sanhedrin as to who Jesus is, albeit mockingly. Once again, we hear a testimony of who Jesus is. He's innocent. He's done nothing deserving death. He's done nothing deserving punishment either. But he will die. And through his punishment and and death, we will live. Jesus said nothing again and again in the face of false accusations and injustice. He truly is the suffering servant. He truly is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Although he was totally innocent, he was willing to be treated as guilty so that you and I could be treated as righteous. And all along, both Pilate and Herod could have stopped the whole thing. Yet they failed to do so. This truly is the hour and power of darkness. Yet through it all, God is at work. Acts 2.23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Again, there's plenty of blame to go around. In Acts 2, a little bit later, verses 25 to 28, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed 
both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan have predestined to take place. These wicked men are lining up against Jesus, but God is behind the whole thing. This is the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, predetermined from eternity past. Jesus truly is the Christ. He truly is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But what is your response to the Lord Jesus Christ? How do you receive Him? Are, are you like Pilate or, or Herod, really indifferent to Jesus? Like the Jews with, with open animosity to, to Jesus? Or have you and are you relying on Jesus and Jesus alone for your salvation? C.S. Lewis speaks of, of sharing the gospel with a dying man in hospital who is more concerned with a, a blue bottle fly buzzing in the window than he was with the words of life. This man's conscience was at peace, but it should not have been at peace. Sinclair Ferguson says there's nothing more awful in all the world than to have a peaceful conscience without faith in Jesus Christ. Do you have faith in Jesus Christ? Is he your Lord? Is he your Savior? Is he your King? Will you suffer the, fate, the same fate as Herod and Pontius Pilate? As we'll see next week, the injustice will reach new depths as Pilate hands Jesus over to be crucified. Let's pray together. Triune God, we marvel at the gospel that from eternity past, the Father and the Son would enter into a covenant of redemption whereby Christ would agree to die for the sins of his people. And Father God, you would send him into the world as he took on flesh and dwelt in the midst of a sinful creation tempted in every way as we are yet without sin, as he fully fulfilled both ends of the covenant, as he was punished in our place on the cross, as he suffered not just under Pontius Pilate, but he suffered under your hand, as he drank the cup of your wrath all the way to the dregs. As he gave up his life, but then three days later as he rose from the grave, victorious over sin and death and hell. We praise you, Lord, for the victory of Christ that is our victory. We praise you for the Holy Spirit who applies the work of Christ to us, who grants us repentance and faith, who regenerates our hearts and helps us to grow in our love for Jesus and a worship of Jesus. Help us, I pray, all of us, to behold Christ and to respond accordingly to Christ as our King, 
as our Lord and our Savior. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.